Job chapter 11. This chapter I'm entitling Zophar's Accusations. Remember the story. Job, in the opening chapter, receives, if you will, the notice of heaven. And God speaks and says, have you considered my servant Job like there's nobody like him in all the earth? And remember, the challenge was laid down in heaven. And Satan basically said, the only reason why he loves you and serves you is because you put a little hedge of protection around him. Lift the hedge and he will deny you. As you know, he loses his family. He loses his livelihood. And then he loses his health. Three friends come to provide comfort. But they wind up, instead of bringing comfort, condemnation. There's a series of dialogues that take place between Eliphaz, who represents human experience, Bildad, who represents tradition, and now Zophar, who sort of represents what I'm going to call legalism or dogmatism. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. That he would show you the secrets of wisdom. For they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heaven. What can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Job is in trouble, and his troubles continue. If you've ever had troubles in your life, if you've ever cried out and said, Lord, I, I don't understand what's going on in my life. I don't understand what's going on in my marriage. I don't understand this series of events that have seemed to unfold in my life. I read somewhere that if roaches in your kitchen are wearing party hats, it's time to clean the kitchen. Because roaches don't voluntarily leave the kitchen. You have to make them disappear. And problems rarely go away. You can imagine that for people who have problems, they usually fall into two categories. The category of, we need to deal with this problem. 
And other people will say, let's just hope that if we ignore it long enough, if we pretend that it isn't really there, maybe it will disappear. Remember that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they're all going to offer solutions to the problems that Job is facing. Earlier in the study, I suggested that Job's friends represent different ways of dealing with those problems. Eliphaz, the Temanite, was the mystic, the subjective person, the person who looks to the spiritual experience to explain. Bildad, the Shuhite, is the traditionalist, the one who appeals to tradition and wise sayings or clever aphorisms or proverbs to deal with life's problems, but sometimes it just sort of boils down to a cliche. And guess what? A cliche might be funny, a cliche might be insightful, but it's hard to live your life based on a cliche. And so, Zophar enters the picture. Zophar is dogmatic. He's fairly certain that he knows the mind of God. He's the person who knows more about God than just about anybody else. Now, let me be clear what I mean when I say dogmatic or dogmatism. Dogmatic or dogmatism is the idea of the arrogant and stubborn assertion of opinion or belief. As fact. In other words, dogmatism is when you assert that something is true, but you don't have all of the information to really know whether or not it's true. Do the answers to Job's questions lie in the mysticism of Eliphaz or the traditionalism of Bildad or the dogmatism of Zophar? In his commentary on Job, Warren Wiersbe suggests that Eliphaz is the youngest of the group. The reason being he has spoken in a, in a kind of an order. In, in that culture and society, it would go from the eldest to the youngest. And he points out that Eliphaz is an angry young man. And that it's his religious anger and his, it's sort of like something bursts inside of him. This isn't compassion or sensitivity. Wiersbe writes, quote, How sad it is when people who should share ministry end up sharing misery. I want you to pause and think about what Wiersbe just said. How sad it is when people should be sharing ministry, when in fact they're creating misery. Job has lost his family. He has lost his job. He has lost his health. He is sitting in an ash heap. Wearsby outlines the chapter with three accusations. Job is guilty of sin in verses 1 through 4. The accusation that he makes is that, that Job is ignorant of God in verses 5 through 12. And then once again, he will talk about Job's stubborn refusal to repent in verses 13 through 20. In Job's answer, he's going to address all of these accusations. And we'll learn about this later in chapter 2. 
12, Job will affirm God's greatness and his own innocence in chapter 13. And then Job suggests that he has no hope. And so he is going to basically be saying in chapter 14, I know that you've called me to repent, but I'm going to suggest to you that that's probably not going to be the solution to my problem. And so the first accusation that Eliphaz, or that Zophar makes, you're guilty of sin. Look at verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Normally I wouldn't spend very much time on this, but Zophar is an interesting name. You know, we make fun of, everything's good, Zophar. But that's actually, in the Hebrew language, the name Zophar comes from a root word that means a sparrow. And it goes even older in its root word. It was the Hebrew word that meant to Twitter. And I'm not kidding you. This is sort of like the Bible's first Twitter account. The masculine form of the name you might know. Some of you are familiar with the name Zipporah. Zipporah was the wife of Moses. And so Zophar is the masculine form of the, of the name in the Hebrew language. So masculine Zophar, feminine Zipporah. William MacDonald quotes an earlier commentator, and he says that like Zipporah, Zophar is an unconscious opponent of God's judgment on the flesh, though he was very zealous in condemning the fancied works of the flesh in Job. Riddout's words, quote, his vehement denunciation being utterly out of place were as harmless as the twitterings of the bird for which he is named, unquote. But the way that I, I thought about this is in a modern kind of a way. In the modern kind of a way, people have opinions about a lot of different things. And remember, do any of you have a Twitter account? Some of you do? I do. Geraci, Gino. Hashtag. So think about Zophar. Zophar. Hashtag. Legalism. Zophar doesn't have all of the information necessary to draw the conclusions. But he has a whole lot to say. Look what he says in verse 2. Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Once again... Remember, like the earlier guy, Job is accused of being a windbag. Job is accused of saying empty things. But there's something way worse with what Zophar is doing. Zophar isn't just simply accusing Job of being full of hot air. Zophar accuses Job's speech as unnecessary and empty and false and mocking. Zophar is, at least seems to be, deeply offended by Job's assertion that he's innocent. He's innocent of deliberate sin or known sin. Now let's be cautious here. Job has never claimed that he's sinless. Job has never claimed that he's the perfect person. Job has never claimed that he has holiness and righteousness like God. Zophar accuses Job of idle talk or, or empty words. Now remember what Job or Zophar really believes. Zophar believes that righteous people, good things happen to them. 
Zophar believes that wicked people, terrible things happen to them. And so in Zophar's world, this can't be happening. And so Zophar accuses Job of idle talk, empty words. He, and, and the reason why he's using that expression is because of Job's protests. Job has been saying, I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. Zophar saying, no, your claims are unfounded. As a matter of fact, Zophar is accusing Job of mocking God. In what way? By questioning God's justice or his fairness, or in punishing Job or allowing Job to suffer. In other words, Zophar's position is, who are you to accuse God of anything? Zophar accuses Job of self-righteousness. Why? Because Job is insisting on his own innocence. Now, in Zophar's world, there's little or no room to question God. And maybe that's true in your case. I know that for a very long time, it was true in my case. In other words, I lived in a world where I, I thought I knew what the Bible said. I thought I had a good handle on the nature of God and the character of God. But I made a terrible mistake. It wasn't in the nature of God or the character of God. It was in not allowing people to ask difficult questions and express their real feeling. By the way, do people have real questions about the life that they're living? Do people have real feelings when they lose their husband or they lose their wife or their child dies or they lose their job or their marriage falls apart or they physically begin to deteriorate? And so part of what I I, I think I'm trying to hopefully help you understand is that there, there are times when in compassion and sensitivity and grace we have to allow people To ask the hard questions and express their feelings. So what's the difference between self-righteousness and biblical assurance or confidence in Christ? Remember, Zophar is accusing Job of being self-righteous. Does Job have a right relationship with God? We know from chapter 1 and 2 that he does. Is God pleased with Job or displeased with Job? He's pleased with Job. Clearly, Job cares more about God and honoring God than anyone else on the earth. Remember what I said to you earlier. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him? I got to tell you, if if God ever said that about you, it would be pretty impressive. If God ever said that about me, again, I, I couldn't understand how he could possibly come to that conclusion. But let me be blunt here for just a moment. It's the conclusion that God comes to when he sees you in Christ or he sees me in Christ. Do you realize that when you are in Jesus, the Lord is completely satisfied with your spiritual condition? 
Does that mean that there aren't little bumps in the road, that there aren't problems and there aren't painful things? And is God at work in your life molding, shaping, and changing? The answer is yes. See, Christians can have confidence in Christ. Do Christians have confidence in the flesh, in their own righteousness, in their own good deeds? In their own good judgment. That's exactly right. Christians don't assert that they're perfect or sinless. You know, again, it almost sounds like a cliche. You've seen it on a bumper sticker. I'm not perfect. I'm forgiven. Now, again, when your unbelieving family and friends are reading the bumper sticker, they're thinking a, a kind of a bumper sticker theology. But there's way more to the story, isn't there? And so many Christians are accused of being self-righteous by their believing and unbelieving friends. And maybe you've received that kind of accusation. Who are you to tell me that the Bible's true? Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior? Who are you to tell me blah, 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 yakety, schmackety? And you say, I'm nobody. I affirm and assert that I'm nobody. I'm just simply a person who's read the Bible and the claims of Christ and the gospel invitation, and I've received that invitation. By the way, is the Bible full of warnings about self-righteousness and pride? The answer is yes. In Matthew 23, 12, it says, And whoever will exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The New Testament testimony is that the way up is the way down. And so... Zophar says, should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? In other words, Zophar is basically saying, really? Are you suggesting that that just because you're asserting your innocence, that that we're going to not talk about it? And then he says in verse 4, for you have said, this is Zophar, My doctrine is pure, and I'm cleaning your eyes. Now, remember what he's asserting. That Job has said, my teaching is pure. That means undefiled, without any problems. And I am clean in your eyes. Here's the problem. Did Job ever say that? Did did Job ever say, everything that I've said is exactly right, and I am completely without guilt in every way? That's not what he said. And so I want you to think about this for a moment because that's what the legalist will often do and that's what the person whose focus, I'm going to use the term, oh, remember when I, when I said dogmatism. It means the arrogant assertion that your opinion or your belief is correct. When I say dogmatism and legalism, it's really important that I define the term legalism. Legalism, remember I've used this definition over and over again, is when my opinion becomes your obligation. And so, so far, is misquoting Job... Job 
has said that he's unaware of any grievous sin in his life. In other words, he's unaware of any conscious sin or deliberate sin or willful disobedience. Job has never used terms like, I am pure, I am clean, I am holy, I am good, in the same way that the Bible represents God as being holy and pure and clean. Now, the reason why this becomes important for each and every one of you is just because a person who claims to be your friend won't always say what you really said. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you're trying to have this conversation and they accuse you of saying things that you've never, ever even said? And so the conversation is constantly going back and forth of trying to affirm what was actually said. Like so many miserable counselors, Zophar hears what he wants to hear. And he quotes what he wants to quote. This is a selective kind of perception where you hear only what you want to hear and you say only what you want to say. I want to pause for a moment. And I want to remind you of something. What do all the answers of Job's friends have in common? Whether we're talking about Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar, what do all three of them have in common? I'm going to point a couple of things out to you. Number one, there's a conspicuous lack of sympathy and comfort in all of their answers. In all of their answers, at least Eliphaz and Bildad have some civility. But Zophar throws that out the door. But all of them, there's a lack of sympathy. There's a lack of sensitivity. There's a lack of comfort in their answers. And what do we find from Job's friends? Not comfort. Not sensitivity. We find accusation. We find blame. We find finger pointing. We find judgment. We find condemnation. Now remember, remember what all three of them have in common. They all three have a theory about why Job is suffering. Remember, Job is in pain. Job has lost his job. He's lost his children. He's lost his health. And they're all thinking, hmm, how do we explain the circumstances of Job's life? Just like your friends and family. They have a theory about why things went so wrong in your life, in your marriage, or in your health, or in your church life, or whatever it is. Isn't it funny how everybody seems to know the answer to your most pressing questions? Now, all three, either directly or indirectly, believe that Job's sufferings are a direct result of Job's sin. Remember the reoccurring theme that we've learned in the book of Job. Is that true? Are Job's sufferings the direct result of Job's disobedience? That isn't the answer. But you see, they all have this really good theory. And it's really important to them that their theory work. And so, all three, without access to the facts, oversimplify Job's problems 
And then they go forward with limited information. And the reason why all of this is important to all of us is this. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to go forward? You made something complex, maybe a little too simple, that you tried to go forward, but you didn't have either all the information or you had inaccurate information. Have you ever suggested a solution to a problem, but then you failed to consider that there might be more to this problem than meets the eye? And that's exactly what's happening here. Zophar hasn't taken all of the facts into consideration, and he's certainly completely unaware of the first two chapters of the book of Job. You see, there are Zophars in this world who claim to know the truth, who claim that they can connect the dots. They claim that they have a customized solution to your intractable problem. I know why you're sick. I know why you're ill. I know why your marriage is in trouble. I know why that you have a problem with this addiction. I know why you have a problem with this pain. I know why. I know why. And it isn't always true. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, Zophars don't understand how God is working in your life, yet they have a customized message of shame and blame for you, and they may even say, hey, this is from God. Why do they do this? Because you're not doing what they believe you should be doing, or you're doing what they believe you should not be doing, or you're doing what they believe you should not be doing. In other words, this is Job's counselor. Hey, you know why there's so many problems in your life? You're not doing what I think you should be doing. Well, what do you think I should be doing? Well, God showed me in a vision. God showed me in a dream. God showed me this. Or I learned by experience that. But listen carefully to what's going on in the second accusation. You don't know God as well as you think. Look at what it says in verse 5. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. This is Zophar's way of saying, remember what you said earlier? I wish I could hear from God so I would understand what's going on. Zophar saying, yeah, I wish you could hear from God too. Because if you could hear from God, then you would hear that everything that I'm saying to you is true. In verse 6, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity desire or deserves. Now, again, here, here's part of the problem. Both Job and Zophar say, I wish I could hear from God. So far, so good. Job says, if we could hear from God, he would affirm my innocence. Zophar says, if we could hear from God, he would affirm your guilt. By the way, truthfully, who knows the truth? God knows the truth. Have you ever heard anybody, or have you yourself ever said, God is my witness? You might have said that, that God knows the truth. 
In Psalm 103, verse 10, it does say, He has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor has he punished us according to our iniquity. When Zophar says, Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Is there a measure of truth in that statement? Is it a truism that God hasn't dealt with us according to our sin? Is it a truism that God doesn't punish us according to our iniquities? That is a true, but it's not the whole truth. Because look what Zophar is saying. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Pause for a moment. Is God a just judge? Yes. Does God ever exact less? No. He never does. God exacts justice in every single case. What does that mean to you? It means that you're in big trouble. Unless Jesus Christ is Lord. Unless Jesus the Lord is able to represent you and say, hey, guess what? All that the Bible says about Jesus, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. Everything, everything that could go wrong and has gone wrong, the the Lord has laid it on him. And you see, this is where Zophar has made a terrible mistake. God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. What does this imply? It implies that Zophar knows the mind of God concerning the circumstances of Job and his iniquity. Is that true? It is not true. Let me just be blunt. Most people who say to us, I know what your problem is. Have no idea what they're talking about. Especially if they say, the Lord has showed me what your problem is. Now don't get me wrong. The Bible gives us plenty of testimony that we can make an appeal to. But I'm here to tell you as your pastor, beware, beware, beware of anyone who ever comes to you and says, I know the mind of God in your circumstance. Here's the real key issue, and this is interesting. How does God see people? Remember, Job has asked this question. How does God look at people? And the biblical principle seems to be this. God doesn't have a point of view. God only has points of view. View. God sees you from the upside, the downside, the left side, the right side. God sees all angles all the time. Zophar is basically saying, I wish you could see yourself the way that God sees you. Now that's a very, that's a wonderful thing to say. I wish you could see yourself the way that God sees you. But remember what, jo- what Zophar thinks by that. He sees you as a dirty, rotten, evil, wicked person who's getting exactly what he deserves. Now imagine you have two different people who say, one person on my left says, I wish 
you could see the way God sees you, dirty, rotten, stinking, hell-bound sinner. I wish, person on the right, I wish you could see you like God sees you, loving, gracious, compassionate, sensitive, who's made a way of salvation, a way to forgive you, a way to reconcile you. When someone says to you, I wish you could see yourself the way God sees you, which of these two would you opt for? The one on the left or the one on the right? Yeah, you're going to go with the right. But something inside of your heart draws you to the left because your conscience accuses you. It accuses you. It accuses you. And don't get me wrong, we are sinners by nature and by choice. But in in other words, what we have to do is we have to give the whole picture that the Bible gives. How does God see us? Have all we like sheep gone astray? We've each one turned from our own way? The, the answer is yes. Have all sinned and none come... Sh- have we all sinned and none come... Sh- and all come short of the glory of God? Thank you. The answer is yes. But we have to say the next sentence. But thank God for Jesus Christ willing to forgive us and reconcile us to himself. And so, there seems like a safe thing to say unless what you're saying is leaving the wrong impression. When we invite people to see themselves as God sees them, we need to give the whole picture. Does Zophar think that he has to defend God's justice? I think so. Does Zophar think that he can defend God's justice at the expense of Job's integrity? And this is where the real, real problem lies. Zophar is thinking, I have to stick up for God, because if I don't stick up for God, who will? But who's going to stick up for Job's integrity? Think of what all these men believe. Zophar, Bildad, Eliphaz. They all believe that sin brings suffering and righteousness brings prosperity. Is that generally true? Generally it is true. But is it always true every time? In every way. That's part of the lesson of Job. It's not true every time, in every way. And so in verse 7 it says, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? As a matter of fact, in this little poetic statement in verse 7 and 8, they are higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than... The sea. This is actually beautiful. It is true that the ways of God are past finding out. Can you search out the deep things of God? In other words, can you know everything that God knows? Obviously not. Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? God is a self-existent being who created the heavens and the earth and everything that it contains. So it is true that the ways of God are past finding out. It is true that they're beyond human understanding. But again, let's pause for a moment and consider the question. Can you search out the deep things of God? I'm going to suggest to you 
that just because we can't know everything about God, does that mean that we can't know anything about God? No, that's not true either. What can we know about God? We can know everything about God that he's disclosed. We can know everything about God that he himself has revealed. What is the source of information concerning the character of God and the nature of God and the attributes of God? It's found in the Bible. So if the Bible says, is God knowable or unknowable? The Bible says that he is knowable. The Bible says that he reveals himself. The Bible says that he speaks and that he acts in human beings' lives. Paul certainly does that in the 8th chapter of Romans, which I happen to be teaching on Sundays. In the 8th chapter of Romans, he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He cites tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and storm. And in Romans 8, verse 38, Paul says, For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Paul invites us to say, is it possible for you to know the love of God? The answer is yes. And the love of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Is it true that we can't know everything about God? Yes. Is it true that we can't know anything about God? No, that is not true. And so when he writes, they are higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? So it's his way of saying the boundaries of God are not the boundaries of the heavens. In other words, if for whatever reason you were able to go to the outskirts of the solar system and then you were to go to the outskirts of the galaxy and then from the galaxy you were able to somehow find the rim of the known universe wherever that line is, the, be- the, the beginning of the end of the universe. Is God beyond that? Yeah. In, in, in the sense that it, it is a self-existent God limited by our universe. No. Limited by the grave. And so in verse 8 when he says, deeper than Sheol, I think that here the word Sheol means the grave. It means death. Deeper than Sheol. In other words, if you went beyond life, to the place where, they're, where the dead go, the righteous dead or the unrighteous dead. Remember that there are people who ask and answer the question, what happens when you die? Do we survive death? So when he says they're higher than the heaven, deeper than Sheol, the boundaries of God are not the boundaries of heaven. They're not the boundaries of the grave. Verse 9, their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Remember, this is the oldest book in the Bible. Does this book sound like it's almost 4,000 years old? It really doesn't. It sounds like the deep, important questions that people constantly ask themselves. They ask, if we were to measure the earth, how, how big would the earth actually be? 
If we went as far north as we could possibly go, if we went as far south as we could possibly go, if we went as far east or west as we could possibly go, if we plumbed the depths of the sea. So what exactly is Zophar asking Job to do? To grasp or lay hold of the wisdom of God? To search its borders? It's true that God's ways aren't our ways. It is true, but Zophar takes the truth And he doesn't use it as a tool to minister to him, but as a club to bludgeon him. By the way, does the Bible say that we're to speak the truth? Yes. Does the Bible say we're to speak the truth in love? Was the truth meant to be a weapon that you use against your enemies. No. Someone said, they are not weapons to fight with, but tools to work with, not toys to play with. And so, it is true that we can't know everything about God. But it's also true that there are some things that we can know. Again, Wiersbe rightly points out that Zophar, in doing this, is dropping the not-so-subtle hint that he has some grasp of those dimensions. You know, it's one thing for a person to give a speech. Don't you realize that God is higher than the heavens? I mean, it sounds like it could be a Supremes or a Temptation song. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no river wide enough. You know, you can say all of these poetic things, but the implication is, and I know that. I know that. And see, this is, this is the key. Zophar is giving us the not-so-subtle hint that he has grasps of, of these dimensions, that he understands the height and depth and breadth of the reality of who God is. But what if I suggested to you that that's not exactly true? By the way, does everyone who say, I know the Bible, I read the Bible... Is it possible that people know the Bible and they read the Bible, but somehow they're disconnected from the author of the Bible and the spirit of the Bible and the love that's given and and the compassion and the sensitivity? In Ephesians 3, 17 and 18, Paul writes that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, verse 19, that you would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you you may be filled with the fullness of God. Does this sound like a person who just wants to intellectually satisfy you or to answer questions about your curiosity? Or is this a hope that you will connect with the true and living God who occupies eternity and reveals himself in Christ? And so Zophar says, if he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder? In other words, it's Zophar saying, hey, look, if God decides to come your way, if God wants somebody in jail, what's going to happen? They're going to jail. If God wants somebody released from jail, 
what's going to happen? They will be released from jail. If God wants somebody elected president, (laughs) what will happen? They will be elected. And if God wants somebody impeached, what do you suppose will happen? They'll be impeached. This is part of the point that he's making. Then who can hinder him? In other words, who can thwart the plan of God when God has a plan? No one. And then in verse 11, for he knows deceitful men. But again, is Zophar right when he says, does God know the difference between an honest person and a person who's a liar? Yeah. Is it possible that you can be fooled by a liar? Yeah, it is possible. Oh, I won't speak for you. Sorry. (laughs) It's possible that someone could speak to me and fool me. The Bible says, or Zophar here says, he sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? Now, I want you to pause for just a moment. Zophar claims to know a lot about God, about his omniscience, about his character, about his judgment. Zophar claims to know about a, 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 a lot about God's greatness. One, one Bible teacher, MacDonald, writes, his ignorance of God's greatness disqualifies him to question God's justice. He knows a lot about God, but he doesn't know everything about God. He knows a lot about God, but there's enough that is left out that he is unjustly, inappropriately, with insensitivity, accused someone of something that they weren't guilty of. And so when he says, if he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, he's making an appeal to justice. And then he says, maybe the worst thing that has been said up until this point in the book of Job. He says, for an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey, donkey's colt is born a man. I know, you're reading it and you're going, what in the world does this mean? Some of you might have images like me growing up watching Pinocchio turn into a little donkey. You know, here's this little boy or this little wooden puppet who, who wants to be a boy and the wooden puppet turns into a donkey. What does this mean? Let me quote Wearsby. Quote, The proverb may be saying that no matter how stupid a man is when he's born, even as dumb as a wild donkey there's still hope for him to become intelligent. Or, or, the proverb might be saying exactly the opposite, as in the NIV. But a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey is born to a man. The New American Standard says, and an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. I'm going to suggest to you that the second opinion is probably the truth. In view of Zophar's anger and his insulting language, it's likely that the NIV and the NASB is is true. David McKenna writes, quote, 
Zophar falls victim to his own verbiage. His agitation ignites verbal violence that flares up and becomes a careless curse. Not only does he denounce Job as an empty-headed donkey, you can fill in the other word, but in contemporary language, he declares that wisdom will elude Job until hell freezes over. Somewhere in the process, Job's pitiful condition has been forgotten and his anguished cry has been ignored. Zophar is consumed by his own anger and it personifies the quip with friends like this, who needs enemies? Think about what he's saying. Job, you think you're wise. You're exactly the opposite. You're a fool. So here's the third accusation. You need to repent and put away sin. Verse 13, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him. So Zophar thinks that the tried and true practice of knocking a person down and then picking him up will result in achieving his counseling goal. Now, I want you to just think about this. He gives Job the most insulting statement that has been made probably ever to Job to his face. And then he says, oh, but by the way, if you'll prepare your heart and stretch out your hand towards him, God will change everything. Zophar lays out four principles in the next few verses. And again, this will really preach. You could put this on TBN. Prepare your heart. Pray to God. Put away iniquity. Repudiate wickedness. That sounds really good. Prepare your heart. Pray to God. Put away iniquity. Repudiate wickedness. And under normal circumstances, that's a great message. But it doesn't apply to Job. Again, McKenna, he writes, quote, Zophar's religion is right, but ritualistic. Righteousness for him is a lockstep system of religious discipline. Little provision is made for personal relationship between God and man. Instead, justice rules the relationship. Zophar deserves credit for being consistent at this point. If God's justice rules righteousness, does it also rule rewards? Zophar follows through by holding out God's rewards for righteousness like carrots on a stick. Remember his deeply held conviction. Righteousness, reward. Wickedness, punishment. Verse 14, if iniquity were in your your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, remember, Put away the iniquity. Then surely you could lift up your face without spot. In other words, he's covered with boils and ashes. It's as if, guess what? Now you could lift your head to heaven with a clean face. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed by and your life would be brighter than noonday. If you would just do exactly as I say... You could have your best life ever. The problem? It's not true. 
This is the idea, if you would just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you would just simply toe the line and and agree with us, then everything would be different. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning. And you would be secure because there's hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest and safety. Digging around you means a place of cultivation where, where there's food and provision. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. You have security. Yes, many would court your favor. Guess what? If you'll do all of these things, remember how people respected you. Remember how they came to you. Remember how they valued you, your counsel and your opinion. Guess what? If you prepared your heart, if you prayed to God, if you put away iniquity, if you repudiate wickedness, everything that you lost is going to come back to you. Zophar suggests that obedience to the formula is the result of personal success. You can experience status, security, healing. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Zophar believes that God knows human nature. Zophar believes and his brand of righteousness accepts and embraces that in the real world, in the real church, in the theology of his way of thinking, Zophar has this mindset. People... When push comes to shove, they want the kind of religion that answers the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? If I go to church, if I read my Bible, and if I'm a good boy, or if I'm a good girl, will my husband stay with me? Will I, will I not be diagnosed with cancer? Is it possible that, I, that, that my husband in Iran won't find himself in prison because he goes to the Muslims in order to preach Christ? Is it possible if I do everything right and I do it right every single time, I'm going to escape every kind of pain and every kind of problem and every kind of suffering? Remember what Zophar really believes. In his theology, friendship with God is a system of rewards and punishments. But is that what a real relationship is like, a real love relationship? Do real people who love each other and care about each other and live with with each other and support one another and try to encourage one another, are there pains and are there problems and are there difficulties? By the way, do kids sometimes wake you up in the middle of the night screaming? Do they sometimes get sick and have a fever? Do people sometimes lose their job? Do people sometimes have an accident? Do people sometimes wind up in the hospital? And is it always because they did something horrible and terrible and God is punishing them? Again, McKenna writes... Sweetness easily turns to bitterness in Zophar's shallow faith. To conclude his strange speech of exaggerated truth, blemished beauty, and unrealistic promises, he pulls the carrot and wields the stick. 
I love the image that he gives. In, in other words, these are like carrots on a stick. Prepare your heart, pray to God, put away the iniquity, repudiate wickedness. Here's the carrot, here's the carrot. I'll do exactly, and you're reaching for the carrot, and all of a sudden they remove the carrot, and there's the stick, and he beats you over the head with it. With curled lip, McKenna writes, Zophar sarcastically answers Job's prayer for a sign of hope with a warning. Verse 20, But the eyes of the wicked will fail. Here's the warning. This is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. This is a way of saying that your lights will go out. If you've ever seen someone die, there's almost like a luminescence in the eyes. Imagine you're shining a flashlight in someone's eyes and then you turn off the light and then everything goes dark. Everything goes dark. It's, it's, it's a warning. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. In other words, he's saying, if you don't prepare your heart, if you don't pray to God, if you don't put away the iniquity, if you don't repudiate wickedness, this is his way of saying, you're going to die. And there will be no escape. And their hope, loss of life. It's Zophar's way of saying... Do what I say, or face the consequences. So what does he offer exactly? Comfort? Compassion? He offers a pretense, saying that he knows the mind of God and the heart of God when in fact he doesn't. He pretends to know the secret of suffering. Here's his answer. Wicked suffer, righteous are rewarded. He claims an inside knowledge of the mystery of God. He reduces the relationship to God to a ritual. Again, McKenna writes, Zophar will either destroy the final shreds of Job's faith or deepen his pain and suffering. Can you imagine when those are the options? You're either going to destroy what little faith Job has left or grind him deeper and deeper into despair. Zophar believes that Job's knowledge and understanding of God is inadequate or incomplete. Zophar thinks that he's on God's side. Zophar believes that Job doesn't really understand God's wisdom. Zophar believes that there's two sides. The obvious and the mysterious. Zophar is the person who says... I know the secret things that only God knows and God's going to reveal them to me. And guess what? He's going to let me be an instrument in order to help you. But here's the problem. It's not true. When Zophar says there's two sides to God's wisdom, obvious and not so obvious. And I have access to the not so obvious. You know, it's one thing to be wrong. But it's another thing to be wrong and petty and mean-spirited and abusive. I know some of you are counselors, and I know that God uses many of you in order to bring health and hope and grace and mercy and compassion into people's lives. But I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to say it out loud. 
What do you think's better? Bad advice or no advice? I didn't I said don't answer, but it's okay that you did. Because I think that's the right answer. I think the right answer, if you have to choose between bad advice and no advice, go with no advice. To pretend to know something that you don't know is only going to create problems. I heard someone say, and I wish I could remember where the quote comes from, but they made the statement, any fool can count the number of seeds in an apple. But only God knows the numbers of apples in a seed. Isn't that good? Any fool can count the number of seeds in an apple. Do the math. But only God knows the number of apples in a seed. And when you plant a seed of hope, you plant a seed of grace, you plant a seed of compassion, you plant a seed of mercy, you plant a seed, not of knowing everything about everything, but you say, I don't know everything about everything, but I know the God who knows everything about everything. I'm not even for a moment suggesting that he's revealed to me everything about you, but let's look in his word to see what he has to say in these circumstances so that we can apply it to our life. By the way, is it helpful to be angry and bitter and upset over other people's failure? Not really. I guess the way I would ask it is how did it help you? How did it help you when you were in trouble And in your trouble, it was met with bitterness, anger, condemnation, and accusation. Or how helpful was it when the person said, I don't know everything about everything, but I'll pray with you, and I'll walk with you, and I'll talk with you, and I'll cry with you. I will weep with those who weep. I'll mourn with those who mourn. I'll rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm not going to pretend to know everything about everything, but I know that God is good, and I know that God has a plan, and I know that God has a purpose, and I know that God is willing to give us strength and mercy if we will walk with him in the direction of hope. You see, people will appeal to tradition. They will appeal to personal experience. They will make a legalistic or a dogmatic statement. But in the end, in the end, wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle. I'm thinking next week, chapter 12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so many lessons. There's so many insights. Heavenly Father, as we look at real people in the past, struggling with real problems about pain, about suffering, about loss, about friendship, about comfort, and about assurance. 
Lord, these are the same issues that we struggle with over and over and over again. Lord, we pray that we would exercise humility and grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us learn a most important lesson. Not to pretend to know things that we don't really know. And Lord, give us confidence. Not in our flesh. But Lord, in the life of Jesus. In the ministry of Jesus. In the words of Jesus. In the death of Jesus. In the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, help us to hear with new ears when Jesus says, come. Take up your cross and follow me. Lord, we pray that we would be content to walk in the same direction that Jesus walks. Lord, we pray that we would, with humility and grace, be willing to say the things that he said. And to offer hope for people who are in trouble. And again, Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, they are in that proverbial, metaphorical perhaps even literal, trash heap, dump, trying to sort out the difficulties of their life. Lord, make us gracious men and women. Make us sensitive and compassionate comforters. In Jesus' name, amen.